quote a line from the television series Game of Thrones, what is dead may never die, but rises again harder and stronger. At least that is a line that we can apply to the Joe Biden campaign. After being left for dead, Super Tuesday, and before that, the South Carolina primary, brought Biden roaring back to the place where this podcast predicted he would be all along, the frontrunner. It's been a crazy week in politics, so let's break it down with a particular focus on Super Tuesday, or as we might call it, the night of the living Joe Biden. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And welcome, podcast listeners, to another thrilling episode of Blind Politics. I'm Dr. Nolte from Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, all views expressed in this podcast represent entirely myself and do not reflect those of Regent University or the Robertson School of Government. I am recording this on Thursday, two days after Super Tuesday. And so the last time we talked about the Democratic race was the podcast that came out the week before Super Tuesday. And there was a lot of discussion about, is Bernie Sanders the frontrunner? And I think we can definitively answer that question today. No, no, he is not. Joe Biden is, by any reasonable metric, the frontrunner in this presidential race. And that was something that nobody predicted, at least over the past couple of weeks. Before that, of course, He's the front runner. He's the front runner. We have to say he's the front runner. Nobody's voted. And then what happened? He did badly in Iowa. He did badly in New Hampshire. He underperformed in Nevada. And we all panicked. And I say we because my instincts all along have been Joe Biden was the most likely candidate to be the nominee. He was the most likely front runner. And I believe I even said in one of the podcasts from last year, look, Biden's not going to do well in the first couple of states. They're overwhelmingly white. That's where not where his base is. But when African-Americans vote, they like Biden. He's going to be their choice. And part of the problem is that, frankly, I stopped trusting my own instincts. You know, I, I started to listen to the conventional wisdom that said that, you know, if you finish fourth or fifth in Iowa, it's done. You're done. It's terrible. It's the end of everything. And the reality is that's not the case. And so there are a couple of things that I want to do from this. First of all, I want to look at what actually happened over the past week, how it all fits together, and why we can now definitively say that Biden is the front runner once again. Two, I want to say what lessons we can draw from this, because there are a couple of important things about democratic politics that we can confirm from this that I think are things that I've mentioned previously, things that I've talked about in the past with some of these podcasts, and that has been confirmed. And I think really it is a lesson for all of us as in terms of political observers, and there's a lot that we can draw from this about maybe some things that are, have been attributed to sort of the changing face of politics that doesn't really apply. And then the third thing is I want, I want to look at the possible options moving forward and what we are most likely to see as we move forward in the Democratic primary and so on and so forth. So let's break down what happened, okay? We came into this week, Biden had won zero primaries. Four primaries, Sanders had either won all of them or had finished very, very close in one which was in, of course, the Iowa caucus. And Pete Buttigieg won that, but it was a very, very narrow win. And of course, Sanders says that he won, won the popular vote, which is completely irrelevant because, of course, everything that matters, the only thing that matters from these primaries, okay, is the delegate allocation. 
The the people who are advocating for a national popular vote and how we need to abandon the Electoral College are not looking at the way the primaries play out here, okay? Because the way the primaries are playing out is it is a proportional delegate allocation. There is a threshold for viability and you get delegates out of each of those states if you cross the, th the viability threshold, right? That is actually a proportional representation system. And what we have seen from that is the popular vote doesn't really matter. You know, it gives momentum, it creates a, a sort of a media narrative, but, and, and the media narrative coming into this week was the narrative that Bernie Sanders was now the front runner. And then on Saturday night, that narrative hit a brick wall. And when I say a brick wall, I mean, you know, this is not like a bump in the road. I mean, literally the car was going 80 miles an hour and it crashed into a brick wall and was irrevocably and irreparably damaged. And that brick wall is this. Joe Biden won 48% of the vote in South Carolina. The next closest competitor was Bernie Sanders at 20%, right? Now, Bernie Sanders obviously won a crushing victory in Nevada. Nevada is a, Nevada is a smaller state. Nevada is a caucus. Nevada has a percentage of African-American voters that does not reflect the balance of contests that were coming up on Super Tuesday and beyond. And what we see on Super Tuesday is that Biden gained immense momentum from his victory in South Carolina. There was a consolidation of the anti-Bernie vote that happened very quickly, and Biden curb stopped. He won 10 out of 14 contests. He won the vast majority of delegates from Super Tuesday. Bernie Sanders it looks like he's going to win in California. They're still counting the votes, but probably not sufficiently that all the other candidates are going to be below the viability threshold, which is really what he needed. He needed to get all of the delegates out of California to really start salting this thing away. And that does not look like it's going to happen. So let's break it down a little bit more. Biden wins dramatically in South Carolina. He won a crushing victory with African-American voters. He also won a plurality victory among white voters in South Carolina. And that is, I think, indicative of the fact that insofar as there are still white moderates in the Democratic Party there in the South, Okay, and insofar as there, you know, and when I say white moderates, I mean the sort of traditional, what we'd call yellow dog Democrats, Democrats who are a little bit more culturally conservative, but they agree with, with the Democrats on fiscal issues and foreign policy issues a little bit more. You know, those, those types of Democrats still exist in the South, not in huge numbers, but enough to give Biden a plurality among white voters in South Carolina. And of course, you know, he won a crushing victory among African-American voters. I'll come back to that in a second, because that's one of the big takeaways from this, and I think it's important for us to analyze it and break it down a little bit more. So, what happens next? Buttigieg drops out immediately. Pete Buttigieg has amazing political instincts. <laughs> I would just like to point this out. He won in Iowa. He overperformed dramatically, and then he picked exactly the right moment to drop out. He was the first person to drop out and endorse Biden and get behind Biden, and that means that he's probably going to get a cabinet post if Biden wins. And if you're Pete Buttigieg and you want to stay relevant on a national level, a prominent cabinet post is probably your best shot. Indiana is basically a, a red state with maybe a, the slightest teeny bit of a blue tint if Republicans run a crazy incompetent candidate, but otherwise Indiana is a red state. So Buttigieg does not really have a path to electoral relevance in Indiana, but he could get a cabinet post. He could, he could potentially be in consideration for vice president, particularly if Biden's the nominee. I don't think he will be. The, the top candidate, but he will be in can, in consideration for a cabinet post. And that makes you continue to be relevant. And, you know, obviously also gives you the opportunity to move to maybe a state like Virginia or even Maryland that's a little bit more conducive to a political career moving forward. 
And, you know, he's young enough that he can wait a bit if he has to. You know, he can build up his, his time in government, serve in government for a while, and then by the time you've been in government for a while, you know, the, the carpetbagger thing doesn't stick as much, and he's really potentially got a future in one of those bluer or, you know, very, very light purple, I would say Virginia's a blue state with maybe a slight reddish tint. So, Buttigieg drops out. Klobuchar drops out next, very, very quickly after, endorses Biden. I would say she's got a reasonable shot at actually being the VP pick, and we'll explain, I'll, I'll explain why in, in a bit. And then Beto O'Rourke endorsed Joe Biden. That was interesting. You know, the extent to which that is, is relevant, I think there are still some people in sort of the suburbs of Texas who like Beto, and you might argue that the result in Texas where Biden does appear to have won a narrow victory in Texas is, in fact, a result of that endorsement. So, you know, Beto may be eligible for some sort of post as well. Maybe the, you know, he, he can be undersecretary for dental affairs at Health and Human Services, and, and we can see lots of uh, Instagram of him, you know, Instagramming his own dental appointment again, which would be so much fun. So we have a moderate consolidation behind Joe Biden, and it happens very, very quickly in the time between South Carolina and Super Tuesday. So then what happens? Super Tuesday comes. 14 states. Biden wins 10 of them. Okay. He won Virginia. He won North Carolina. He won Alabama and Arkansas. These are states that we expected him to win. These are states with a substantial component of African-American voters and suburbanites, right? So who are the suburbanites voting for in places like Iowa, New Hampshire? They're voting for Buttigieg and Klobuchar. And they seem to have defected pretty much en masse to Biden. Biden did very well in the suburban counties of Virginia. He dominated in the African-American vote. And if you win the suburbanites plus African-Americans in Virginia, you've won the Democratic primary at the end. North Carolina, similar story, right? Alabama, Arkansas, some of the deep south states. Biden won because he won African-Americans, convincingly, walking away. that Nobody else was close. But he also won a couple of other states. Biden won Massachusetts, <laughs> okay? Let me pause on, on that for just a second because I want to emphasize it because it's, it's quite funny. Biden won Massachusetts, okay? Bernie Sanders is from the state right next door. He did not campaign in South Carolina because he was campaigning in Massachusetts because he was going to win Massachusetts. Possibly that was an oops move, okay? Elizabeth Warren is from Massachusetts. This is her home state. And it's not Warren came in second in her home state. Warren came in third in her home state. Marco Rubio at least came in second in his home state. And Marco Rubio, by the way, dropped out the day the day after he did not win his home state. Elizabeth Warren is still thinking about it as I'm recording this. By the time it's it's released, she may have dropped. But that's that's what we're looking at here. Biden won Massachusetts. <laughs> Nobody expected Biden to win Massachusetts. He did. Biden won Maine. <laughs> the other state that was right next to Bernie Sanders' home state. Biden won Maine. Apparently the the French-Canadian voters in Maine 2nd, you know, the suburbanites in Portland, they're not necessarily feeling the burn as much. Bernie won Vermont, not a big surprise. He won California, Colorado, Utah, Vermont. Okay, that's what Bernie won. Biden won everything else. Two weeks ago, we were talking about, should Biden drop out? <laughs> that was the convention. Like, should he drop out and endorse one of these other, other people? Now, he has the delegate lead. He's the front runner. And it happened very, very quickly. So what changed? Here's where we, I think, start to get into lessons learned. And I think there, there are a couple of things that I want to highlight from this. The number one lesson that I, that I think we learned from South Carolina and Super Tuesday is that African-American voters don't like socialism. And related second lesson, appealing to African-American voters via woke messaging 
does not work, <laughs> right? They, they do not care. We have for a long time talked about how sort of African-Americans, and by we mean political scientists, how Republicans do not understand the African-American voter. They're sending messages, they're, they're trying to do messaging, if they're trying to do messaging, it never works, right? Now we have learned that, in fact, white progressives also don't understand African-American voters. You know, you have candidates promising extravagant reparations, claims, you know, to do all of these types of things with affirmative action, to provide Medicare for all, and all of this type of thing. And, you know, sort of the, the reflexive belief among Democratic Party elites is they speak for the African-American minority, and the African-American minority is as far left as they are, and in fact, maybe farther to the left, right? And it turns out that's not the case. African-Americans are much more moderate, they're much more pragmatic, and I, I, I use this term not in a pejorative sense because I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. There's a transactional aspect to African-American support. What are you going to do? What are you going to practically do to earn our support, to help our communities? You know, it's nice that you're talking about you're going to do all these things with reparations, but like, can you actually win the election? What are you going to do? What's going to happen in our communities? Are things going to get better? They are not really interested in, it would seem, you know, woke white people telling them how racist they're not. That message didn't penetrate. You know, Elizabeth Warren tried that. Pete Buttigieg, to a certain extent, tried that. All of these different candidates tried that. Joe Biden didn't really play that game to the same extent. You know, Joe Biden talked about his relationship with Barack Obama. Joe Biden talked about how he was going to beat Trump. Joe Biden talked about how we were going to make things go back to normal and how everything's gotten crazy and you elect him and things are going to be normal again, right? And that message resonated. <laughs> so, that is a fascinating data point. But African-American voters are not on board with the democratic socialist playbook. And I think it will be interesting to watch the degree to which other non-white voting groups are on board with democratic socialism, right? So, you know, let, let's, let's think about this here for just a second. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, district is majority Latino. She won against Joe Crowley with primarily votes from white upscale hipsters in the district. That, if you look at the votes and you break down where she got the votes, she won there and the local, largely Dominican political machine stayed home because they thought Crowley had this thing in the bag because they did not take AOC seriously. Now, that's, first of all, run unopposed or run scared. If you have an opponent, they can, in theory, beat you. Never pretend like an election is in the bag unless you are literally the only name on the ballot. And even if you are, you might want to check and see if somebody's organizing a write-in campaign just to be on the safe side. There is no such thing as a safe election if you have an opponent, period, end of discussion. So that's, that's you know, one aspect of this. But I would say the same is true of AOC now. So she's got an opponent. She's made some enemies in New York politics. Andrew Cuomo is one. Andrew Cuomo is very upset with her because of the whole Amazon thing. The, there were two candidates running against her. Now they've consolidated. One guy dropped out, endorsed a former TV anchor who is running against AOC on, a, on sort of a more moderate platform. It will be that is a primary that, that bears watching. You know, what happens with Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar? They're both in majority-minority districts, but they're not majority Somali. They're not majority Palestinian. They're not majority from their ethnic communities, right? There's a lot of African-American voters, right? So if you have these people who are going out and being the, really the public face of this democratic socialist revolution, and if African-American voters are not particularly enamored with Bernie Sanders, what's going to happen in those primaries? Now, I wouldn't expect necessarily any one of the three of them to lose, but I also would say that it is a possibility there is a chance that we see one or more of the squad actually lose a primary. Which, by the way, is the only way that they're losing. If somebody says they are running against one of these candidates as a Republican, and particularly they're hitting you up for money, don't give them money. They have no chance of winning. These are D-plus 
30 to 40 districts, meaning that the Democrat usually wins by 30 to 40 points, those seats are not flipping. It does not matter how radioactive or unpopular the Democrat is. The Democrat is going to win those seats. The only time I've ever seen a seat like that flip is the Bill Jefferson scandal. Bill Jefferson, who dollar bill, he was known as, who had, you know, a bunch of money in his freezer, who was forced into a runoff. And Louisiana is unique. They have a runoff. And then the Republican candidate had deep ties into the local Vietnamese community, and they all turned out, and Jefferson's voters stayed home. That's the that's a fluke situation to have a Republican win, and that district snapped back the next time, right? So don't donate to these people. If they say they're a Republican running against one of these candidates, they're not going to win. It is a waste of your money, and they're trying to essentially, I don't want to say it's a scam operation, but it's, it's the next closest thing, at least at this point. That may change at some point, and, and probably should, but the Republicans would really need to start building infrastructure and organizations in these districts, and maybe they should, particularly if it looks like the Democrats are going to lurch more in the Bernie direction in the future. So that's the first thing. Right now, we've got an African-American population that is very committed to the Democratic Party, but they are not committed to Democratic Socialism. They don't like it. It's not the direction they want the party to go in. And they have now become, African-Americans have now become the right wing of the Democratic Party. Okay, that is the situation that we are in. The other component of this is the suburbanites who voted for Democrats in 2018 are also not on board with the Bernie Project, right? They voted with for Democrats because they don't like Trump. These are Romney Clinton type voters and they came out and they voted for Biden. Okay, they're not interested in what Bernie is selling. And so those are two demographics that if, if Bernie can't win African-Americans and Bernie can't win suburbanites, it's hard to see how he wins the nomination moving forward. You know, the only way this was going to work is if he won enough primaries and he had such an insurmountable delegate lead that the Democrats would fall in line and that they would say, you know, it would be bad to have disunity at the convention. You know, we need to give Bernie the nomination. The only way Bernie was winning was in a contested convention. Now you've got a situation where it's very difficult because suburbanites and African-Americans seem to have consolidated behind Biden. Where does Bernie get the voters to make up for that? Millennials? Millennials don't vote. Young, young people don't vote. This is Political scientists are pretty unanimous on this. People who do polling are pretty unanimous on this. The idea that you're going to turn out like massive waves of new young voters, it's, it's, a, it's a black swan. It happens very occasionally. It happened for Obama in, in 2008. It, it is not something that normally happens, right? So sorry, millennials, but we do not have the best track record for being regular, reliable voters. If that's what Bernie's counting on, he's not going to get there. Latino outreach? You know, we, that's a possibility, but it doesn't help when you start saying, particularly in Florida, when you start saying nice things about Castro. You know, it doesn't necessarily help when you praise the Maduro regime. They did very well there in Nevada, but it does not seem like that had the desired impact in Texas. It did not give them the kind of margins that they were hoping for out of California. And if they really, I think, crushed in the, in the Latino vote in California, they should have gotten that margin. So, you know, it, it's not impossible, but it's very difficult to see where Bernie picks up the voters that he needs. Okay, next lesson. You can't actually buy the presidency. <laughs> Mike Bloomberg spent $500 million to win American Samoa. He, he spent per delegate, I think more uh, that he's won so far, more than some entire presidential campaigns have spent. He blanketed the airwaves in Super Tuesday states with ads. And he won none of them. He won American Samoa. He won, you know, it was, uh, I think it was a couple hundred voters. That's literally over a million dollars per, per, per vote that he won to get delegates in, in that state. 
So, you know, candidates matter. Okay, we talk about the influence of money in politics. People talk about how Citizens United and all of this open the floodgates and there's going to be so much corporate spending and people are going to buy the election, right? You can't buy the election if people don't like you. Candidates still matter. Likeability still matters. Mike Bloomberg is unlikable. <laughs> Mike Bloomberg Mike Bloomberg is, you know, the difference between Bloomberg and Trump, people say they're, they're very similar. Bloomberg's a cold fish. Okay, Bloomberg's not a populist. Bloomberg naturally is a technocrat. You know, he, he wants himself and people like him to run the country. And he, he that's his, his appeal, right? Donald Trump is, if nothing else, very good at branding himself as the kind of person that people think Mike Bloomberg is, right? You know, the flamboyant businessman. He's always been kind of a populist. He's always been a showman. Mike Bloomberg's not a showman. Mike Bloomberg is an actual businessman who built, you know, a massive company by filling a need that didn't exist. But he's a cold-blooded technocrat. You know, he's also got some similarities personality-wise to, to Trump. But if you don't have that sort of bombastic showman aspect that Trump has, the unlikable aspects of your personality are the only thing that's left. And you cannot buy likability. You cannot buy likability. It's interesting to think about what might have happened if you had Bloomberg's money behind somebody who was more likable, like Yang. I mean, Yang wasn't good at necessarily great at politics, but he was more of an endearing figure. I think people liked him. He was awkward, but in a way that, that people like. You know, he seemed like a genuinely nice person. Mike Bloomberg does not seem like a genuinely nice person. Like, you know, that that is the rap that has been on him for years, years and years. So, you know, this is not to say that there's not a place for a rich candidate. One of the problems with people who have as much money as Mike Bloomberg does is that they are not used to people telling them their liabilities and their weaknesses. And they probably just fire anybody who tells them, no, you can't do this. This isn't a good idea. You don't have these these certain skills and you need to change these things about yourself, right? If you've got $70 billion, which is almost the GDP of Ethiopia, it's $10 billion less than, than the GDP of Ethiopia for context, right? You probably don't have a lot of people in your circle telling you no. If you are running for political office, you have to have someone in your orbit who will tell you that's a bad idea. You can't do that. You shouldn't do that. No, don't do that. You, know, you have to have the, the, the person who is going to be the no person, the no man or the no woman. I think that's important for leaders just in general. It's very important for candidates. Because if you're the kind of person who thinks you should be president, oftentimes you're not the kind of person who's the best at assessing your own strengths and weaknesses. So you've got to have somebody you trust who can just tell you, you're not good at that. Don't, don't do that. And that's a challenge, but it's, it's particularly a challenge for Bloomberg. And so he's, he's done. He's out. He's suspended his campaign. He's endorsing Biden. That's a smart move on his behalf. He's probably going to spend a lot of money to support Biden. He has promised that. But he's not going to spend as much money as he would have as the nominee. So, you know, that it's just proof that you cannot buy likability and you cannot buy the presidency. That's probably a good thing, right? So those are the big lessons. African-Americans are not big fans of socialism, number one. Number two, suburbanites are supporting the Democrats because they don't like Trump, not necessarily because they're on board with all aspects of the left-wing agenda. Number three, you actually cannot buy your way to the presidency. Right. So all of these are actually probably good things <laughs> for the health of American democracy. They do make things more complicated for Trump and for the Trump campaign. You know, I think Trump has been telegraphing for months that he would rather face somebody other than Biden, particularly that he would rather face Bernie Sanders than Biden. Trump has been all but telegraphing that he wants Bernie in the general election. And so, you know, this is not an optimal situation for the Trump campaign. It makes the race harder. And it makes things very interesting if Trump Trump wins again, right? If Biden is the nominee and Trump wins again. 
It's going to be very hard for Democrats at that point, I think, to resist the siren song of democratic socialism, because there's going to be an argument from the younger activist types that we tried the moderate route twice. They're going to say that, that Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden were, were the moderate route, and it didn't work. And so now we need to double down on the democratic socialist idea. Okay, and, you know, Republicans went through something similar after Mitt Romney lost in 2012. You know, John McCain and Mitt Romney were certainly considered by, by most Republicans to be moderates within the Republican field. And so there was a sense of we tried the moderate route. Now we're going to do something different. Right. And so it was a, it was a race to the right. But then it was it ended up being a, a race to the populist right. If Biden runs and loses, you're going to see the emergence of the populist left. It may not be Bernie. OK, Bernie, Bernie is probably not going to be the avatar of this. But look for somebody to emerge as a, a spokesperson for and a vehicle for that democratic socialist populist left. And it probably needs to be somebody who has more experience actually courting minority voters. That was the other thing about Bernie. He hasn't really done it before. doesn't really have a lot of experience with it. And who can make that populist appeal. Because I think that's, that is, is the most likely outcome if, if it's Trump versus Biden and Trump wins. Now, is Biden a shoo-in for the nomination? No. He could still lose the nomination, certainly. I think he's more likely to win than not, but I wouldn't count out a brokered convention. I wouldn't count out a lack of a decisive majority at the time of the convention. There are still states Bernie could win. There's still time for Bernie to sort of pivot. And, you know, Joe Biden is not actually a terribly great candidate. He's run for president several times before. We kind of know what we're going to get. He is, you know, he, he has a tendency to sometimes have gaffes. He can say and do things that will harm him potentially politically. I wouldn't say he's got this thing in the bag. You know, if you're, if you're team Biden, you don't necessarily want to coast at this point. You want to, you know, stay disciplined, stay focused, keep your candidate disciplined and focused to the greatest extent possible. And, you know, I wouldn't be in a rush to actually do a lot of uh, press events. I'd, I'd be more running a front porch uh, campaign from now until the election and just hope that you, your machine is good enough to carry you. And when you do have those sort of public events, stay focused, stay disciplined, stay on message. And, you know, Biden, Biden has gotten a little bit better with some of the debates and, and things like that, but he just needs to make sure that he stays strong and avoids any major errors, right? And if he does that, I think he has got to be considered the, the favorite to get the nomination ultimately. Because Bernie Sanders at a contested convention does not have the advantage. The superdelegates are not going to be fans of Bernie because they're all thinking about you know, superdelegates include a lot of people who are going to be up for re-election. Nobody wants to run in the Democratic Party with Bernie at the top of the ticket because he's a drag. African-American voters don't particularly care for what he's selling. Suburban voters don't particularly care for what he's selling. If you're going to beat Trump, you need those as a Democrat, you're, you're going to need those constituencies to come out for you in a big way. If you're going to maintain your House majority as the Democrats, you need those constituencies to come out for you in a big way. If you're going to try to take some of the Senate seats that you need to take if you want the Senate, if you're a Democrat, you need those constituencies to come out for you in a big way. I don't think Democrats are going to take the Senate. I think Republicans will hold the Senate. I don't see enough opportunities for Democrats there, given the fact that they're almost certain to lose Alabama. Doug Jones is, is basically a goner unless, you know, either Tuberville or, or Sessions, the two candidates who moved on wins the nomination and then has a, a scandal of Roy Moore proportion, which which seems like it would be very unlikely. You know, given that, they've got some opportunities. We'll probably do a actually a podcast on the Senate landscape once the nominee is decided. There are some opportunities for Democrats to pick up seats. I don't see how they get to a majority. But the House, probably they will keep control of the House if 
they have a nominee, even if they don't necessarily win the, the general election. If they have a non-Bernie Sanders nominee, you have to think their chances of keeping the House are pretty good. Republicans have seen a lot of, of more people running, a lot more candidates running, but that's also because Republicans have seen a lot of retirements. So you probably wouldn't have seen this many GOP incumbents retire if they thought there was a good chance they'd take the House back. Nobody really likes to be in the minority. So that is indicative that you've seen a lot of Republicans, granted Republicans mostly in safe seats, retiring. That indicates to me that they probably don't think the House is coming back in 2020. So what does that mean? All of that is put in jeopardy for Democrats. You know, picking up seats in the Senate, holding the House, all of that is put in jeopardy if Bernie's the nominee. All of it. And so at a contested convention with superdelegates, people who are invested in not just the success of the presidential candidate, but the party down ballot, oftentimes because they are on the ballot, are they going to vote for the guy who is more likely to put their jobs in jeopardy or the guy who is more likely to help them save their jobs? Not a hard decision. Okay, so Bernie's pathway to becoming the nominee just got a lot harder and a lot more narrow. And he's going to have to find a way to broaden his appeal very, very quickly if he's going to win the nomination this time. Okay, so if you're the Trump campaign, what are you, you're watching this, what are you thinking? First of all, you are really hoping that there is a contested convention. You are basically your best bet is for Biden to not go in as a majority. Okay, and for Sanders delegates to really be trying to stop Biden at the convention, even if it's Sanders versus Biden, Sanders Biden one on one. You kind of need the Sanders delegates to be really committed to some sort of floor fight. The best chance Trump has, if in fact Biden is the nominee, is for Bernie voters to stay home. All right, I mean, to a certain extent that, that happened last time, but there, there are a lot of only Bernie. There are a lot more only Bernie people than there are only anybody else people on, on the Democratic side. There, there are some quietly not Bernie, because if it's Trump and Bernie, they're just going to stay home type voters. But in terms of sort of committed partisans, I don't think there's anybody who would say, you know, if Biden's not the nominee, I'm not going to vote for the Democrat. There are people who will say, if Bernie's not the nominee, I'm not going to vote for the Democrat. There probably aren't as many of them as, as Republicans are hoping, but there are some. And the question then becomes, where are they concentrated? Are they concentrated in places like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, states that Republicans won last time, they need to win again. Okay, so that is one aspect of this. The other thing, if you are the Trump campaign, is just, you know, wait for Biden to stumble and try to define Biden early. And, you know, I, I don't know that they've been very successful with that, but that is an opening. You know, so Biden is not shooing against Trump. You know, I'd say it's a, if he's the nominee and I had to take odds, I'd, I'd say he's maybe a 52%, but that is probably a little generous just because I think there's going to be a lot of consolidation behind whoever the nominee is for the, for the Democrats. And you're going to see that reflected in polling. But it's not a guaranteed election in, in any by any means for any of these nominees or any of these potential candidates. All right, so that is your Super Tuesday deep dive on the night of the living Joe Biden. Like a zombie, like a Greyjoy from Game of Thrones, he has come back from the dead, crushing all before him and conquered the Democratic primaries to this point. So we will have to see what happens next and whether the Berniaks can launch any sort of you know, counteroffensive or not, or whether this is really sort of the, the end of the line for, for them. And of course, we're all waiting with bated breath to hear Elizabeth Warren's concession speech. And you know that, of course, will be something that we are all just going to be so excited about. Blind Politics Podcast is not 
particularly big fan of Elizabeth Warren. I tend to think that, number one, she is trying to be something that she's not in terms of going for the whole Bernie thing. I think, number two, she's very bad at politics. And, uh, you know, I I just I don't see the rationale for her campaign at all (laughs) and why she's still in. I'm not clear on. And, you know, it's it's bizarre and kind of annoying. But, you know, (laughs) whatever Uh, you, you do, you, Elizabeth Warren. Actually, at this point, the Democratic establishment's probably happy with her hopefully siphoning off percentage of Sanders's votes. So so they may in fact be asking her to stay in, which is an interesting possibility, I guess, and it means that we will get to enjoy many more hours of Elizabeth Warren potentially doing democratic debates, which I know uh, we're all looking forward to very very much. So that is a wrap. Hope you all enjoyed the podcast. Please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. You can follow us on Facebook at Blind Politics, Instagram at Blind Politics, and Twitter at Blind P-O-L Nolte. Next week, got a couple of podcasts planned out. I think one of them is going to be talking about Israel. I'm more of an Israel-focused podcast, both on the Israeli election and some things that I, I learned at the recent America Israel Public Affairs Committee conference, which I was at, sort of a participant observer. You can never really turn the political scientist hat off when you're at something like that, so I'll give you guys some some of my takeaways from that. And then I'm not sure what we'll do for the second podcast next week. Probably something that is maybe a little bit more on the sort of big picture end of things. So we'll, we'll see on that. But anyway, hope you all had a great week, and you will hear us again on Tuesday. So until then, for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off. <laughs>